Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. We're solution architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. My name's Shane Baldacino, and I'm here today with the AWS Tech Chat podcast, and it is post-reInvent. It's 2019, and it's been a good few weeks since we sat down behind the mic, and today I have Dr. Pete joining me. Welcome back to the show, Pete. It's certainly been a while. Hey, Shane. Hi, listeners. It's great to be back on the show. Um, I hope you guys got plenty of rest over the... Um uh, the Christmas break and maybe uh, uh, took off some January. I certainly did. Um, it's good for the soul. It's good to relax a bit, Shane. Yeah, totally. But you know I what? Know I did. I've been busy. I've uh, when I since I've come back, I've been uh, busily working on the Sydney Summit agenda, Shane. It's a premier event for us here in uh, in Australia, uh, and then we're going to be uh, having an awesome three days worth of innovation, lightning talks, phenomenal uh, workshops, and hands on labs. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of AI and ML this year as well. Uh, so if you're into migration, analysis, data, uh, if you're a builder, if you like to operate in the cloud, if you want to also have a very secure cloud, uh, we're going to have it all for you, Shane, including uh, you know, my personal favorite, the Deep Racer League may even be here in Sydney. Well, this is the uh, – so those of you who um, – been paying attention as to our reInvent announcements, uh, we actually have announced a deep racer, which is really literally, uh, well, actually, let me wind the clock back. So last, uh, a couple of years ago, we announced Deep Lens, which was basically the AI and ML, um, you know, camera with an Intel Atom processor in it. Uh, this year, imagine one of those essentially <laughs> on wheels. So we actually got a car, a deep racer car. That's basically, uh, I like to call it a drone on wheels. Um, and what it does is you can actually build a machine training model, um, deploy it to the deep racer, and this uh, super fast car can race around a track. And depending how intelligently you've programmed it and trained it, um, it could potentially win a race competing against other competitors on the track. So it's pretty impressive. That, that is the coolest remote control car available. It sure is. So, uh, and you can buy it off Amazon.com. So, uh, if you got uh, you know uh, uh, a bit of money burning a hole in your pocket, you could always go and perhaps uh, go and order one. They're yeah, going to be available a few, shortly. A few hundred dollars, I believe. It certainly is. Um, highly recommend grabbing one if you can. But uh, if you can't afford one, uh, certainly come uh, to the Sydney Summit. Uh, you may be pleasantly surprised by having a go at at playing with one of these before you buy. We often save up releases for reInvent, but they don't necessarily go hand in hand. And whilst reInvent has just passed for another year, there's actually been quite a lot of announcements in the last month since we've sat down and recorded. Like, I do wonder if our service teams actually got a break over the Christmas period. Let's hope they did. Indeed, Shane. And uh, we've had a lot of announcements. And how many, uh, roughly? Around 50, you know, is my count here, Pete. So today we're going to deep dive into a select few. But before we get into these announcements, let's quickly jump into some expansion news as over the Christmas period, we have been busy. Pete, tell us all about it. Uh, well, in terms of um, expansions, let me just start off with perhaps the summits. Um, I already talked about the Sydney summit. Uh, that's actually coming to Sydney in late April this year. However, if you happen to be in Berlin, uh, between Feb 26th and 27th, we have the summit uh, in Germany. Um, if you're in Italy, in Milan on the 12th of March. By the way, uh, hello to everyone in Milan. I love that city. It's beautiful. Um, and also in Tel Aviv on the 13th of March, a uh, place I'm yet, I'm yet to visit, is another one of our summits. So uh, a brand new year with plenty of um, 
free online talks are also available. Um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff happening. Uh, and uh, I particularly like that there is actually one in February, a session, uh, where we're actually talking about Lambda layers. Uh, we've talked about it in the last episode, but it's, it's a pretty interesting topic. Uh, and uh, if you want to know more what's happening on the events front, uh, and as we say every year, there's a lot. To, this is the uh, AWS uh, summit season. Uh, it's about to start. So go and uh, punch into your favorite search engine, AWS events, and you'll find out exactly what's going on. But Shane, um, we've got some price reductions uh, that I think we should talk about. Yeah, we do. So... Fargate. So Fargate is a platform that allows you to run containers without having to manage servers or clusters. And it's really helping customers, you know, head towards that no ops or, you know, perhaps reduced ops. A lot of my customers tell me they love the service, but there's often that friction between the increased cost over ECS versus the reduced administration. So in January, we dropped the price of Fargate by up to 50%. And that, when I say up to 50%, is comprised of 20% reduction for vCPU and 65% reduction for memory. And this price reduction is across all regions where Fargate is currently available, which is awesome. So Shane, uh, look, there are no new regions to announce today. Uh, we're still at 20 regions with uh, Stockholm being the latest that we launched in December. And also CloudFront is at 160 points of presence worldwide. So perhaps our data center guys perhaps uh, did take a, a holiday, Shane. Maybe they did. So 2019, Pete. Yeah, know, on with the show. On with the show. You know, it's funny how people get polarized. You know, you can either be like a, a Holden Ford person in Australia, maybe like that's probably translates to maybe like a Chevrolet Ford person, you know, in other parts of the world or an Apple Android person. You know, it's almost a religion. Mm-hmm. And here's another one here. You know, people are often pretty polarized between Linux and Windows. So which are you, Shane? Well, <laughs> I have to ask. It's it's interesting these days since I've transitioned to running on a Mac. Uh-huh. I find myself accustomed to it, and then when I end up having to do something at home, help my wife out, instantly the shortcut keys don't work because they're different. Right, and you know, I, I like both. I will say I'm a bit of a I guess polyglot in nature there, but I think lately I'm probably transitioning more towards the uh, open source side of things. Yeah, I've actually also uh, fast-tracked almost all of my Windows computers out of my house for Macs and uh, variants of uh, the Linux operating system. So, mm. yeah, it's a, it's an interesting era, I think, for everybody. Uh, but anyway, uh, you have some interesting things around Windows. I do, I do, I do, I do. Um, so why do I mention this? Well, the next version of Windows Server has been released. So that is version 1809, or also known as Windows Server 2019. So what's new and why should you care? So I had a bit of a play and here are my top three changes that I've noticed in having a little bit of a playing around. So the Windows Admin Center or WAC, you know, is a is probably a, the change that you probably notice because, you know, once Windows Server starts up and you know, typically go to install roles or features, that is now gone and is replaced with the Windows Admin Center. And it's designed to, I guess, simplify the IT admin experience. So Shane, does that mean that the MMC is dead? MMC, we say goodbye to. And right now- the Microsoft Management Console, by the way, should actually be a more specific here, shouldn't it? So yeah, that's you know where you'd go in and add snapping. So you might add a snap in for Perfmon or computer management, et cetera, et cetera. So it's now web-based. Um, it's a single pane, it consolidates everything. And in case you're wondering, 
you can't use IE to remotely access, but it does support Chrome and Edge, which is now, I believe, based on Chromium. Yes, indeed. Okay, what else is new? There is the system insight. So I haven't actually used this. Right? So in the past, you know, I would often spend time, you know, troubleshooting and diagnosing issues. You know, it could be trying to diagnose mm-hmm. a disk performance issue yep. or a random issue that might only occur at a certain time. You know, it often can be, you know, finding that needle in the haystack, you know, you might have to log for a while then analyze. Um, for me in the past, it was often trying to figure out what an IS app pool, so the worker process, ASP net underscore WP was doing. But supposedly system insights is a predictive analytics tool that should help you find that needle in the haystack using ml you know under analyzing what windows server what the norm is and then trying to figure out insightful information to help you address those issues in your environment in a more proactive manner so it's really it's a deviation having having a look at what's uh, what's different from the, the the baseline behaviors right yeah you know and if a listener is using windows server 2019 and has been using system insights drop us an email we would love to you know hear what you think about it yeah and look uh, something else that's really uh, exciting is uh linux on uh, server 2019 tell us more tell us more you know what's actually cool about this you know you can actually go type in ls or you know ps etc <laughs> commands that work on linux now work on windows so that's great so the windows subsystem for linux allows you to run a gnu linux environment so you know it's that common command line tools utilities application directly on windows server you know without running a virtual machine so really happy when this is available and, you know, as an example, you know, you can just SSH out natively in Windows Server where, you know, before you pro- probably one of the first tools I always download for Windows Server is Putty. Yeah. It's very, native now. So yeah. there we go. Very common scenario. So Shane, um, how much bigger has Windows gotten and uh, or maybe smaller? That's worth talking about that too. Uh, yeah, it's got bigger. I was really surprised and I'm not sure, you know, like, you know, it's becoming bloated and in this containerized world, the requirements I think for Windows Server are quite high and it probably adds more of a reason, I think, you know, to run things like .NET Core if you're using it purely for hosting. So when you spin up Windows Server 2019, the minimum EBS volume is 30 gigabytes. But you might say, hey, that's, you know, that's a GUI. I'm a pro here and I run Server Core. Well, it doesn't really get that much better. So the minimum you should allow to install Windows Server 2019 in server core is 26 gig. And if you have more than 16 gigabytes of RAM, you're gonna need more space again for, you know, paging, etc. you know, dump files and so on. Okay, so if you're running containers, you're gonna need a lot more. Yeah, so I think containers potentially may be a bit of an oxymoron. You know, they're definitely not gonna be Alpine Linux size. I think the smallest Windows container that I'm aware of is, you know, over a gig in size. So there we go. So it adds up a little bit. So, um, so Shane, what about Windows uh, 2012? R2 in particular, the support side of things. So yeah, so 2012 is now out of mainstream support, but it is still within extended support, but that obviously comes at a cost that most organizations would not rather pay. So even if you don't require any of the new features in server 2019, server 2019 may be part of your upgrade you know, path for you know your software development lifecycle plans. Which is where the Amazon um, Windows Server 2019 AMIs come in. They are. So Server 29 AMIs are available in all public AWS regions and GovCloud, and we provide a variety of flavors. So there's Windows Server 2019, there's Server 2019 with Hyper-V, 
There's another one with containers. There's another one with specific language packs and with SQL Server 2017. Yeah, a lot of options as, as always, right? There is. And look, capping all things Microsoft off, you know, a quick update to Beanstalk. So you can now deploy Elastic Beanstalk using .NET Core 2.2. So .NET Core 2.2 comes with diagnostic improvements to the runtime, you know, and several several other improvements um, to which you can find in the official .NET Core 2.2 documentation. But .NET Core 2.2 is the latest stable release. And it does generally um, result in much higher performance. So uh, yeah. Basically, code runs faster, it's more secure. There we go. Cool. All right, Pete, let's talk about a new service. Now, being customer-obsessed company, we're always on the lookout you know, to fill the gaps and meet market expectations. And yep. more of our customers are transitioning absolutely you know, towards up-the-stack services. They tell us that every day, you know, towards you know, a more modern mode two company. But the reality is even with our fancy CICD pipelines, source control, immutable infrastructure and so on, backup is really important, you know, to protect that statement of record, your source of truth. And whilst you can build your own backup tools using, you know, snap EBS snapshots or other mechanisms within our environment, there's still a bit of work, you know, in order to manage your startup. And we're changing that. We are launching a backup service, but Pete, please tell us more. Well, it's funny because, uh, you know, in all the history of, uh, of, of IT, um, backups haven't gone away, right? It's, uh, you know, you want to make sure your data is secure and uh, data is what keeps organizations, you know, ticking over. It's, uh, uh, to use a phrase, uh, data is the new oil, right? Because that feeds uh, machine learning and a whole bunch of other things. But to bring it back to something more uh, pragmatic, um, you know, we've actually announced AWS Backup, which is a fully managed backup service, um, which makes it really easy to um, centralize, which is a key thing here, uh, and to automate a lot of the backups um, that uh, you would be doing um, across AWS services in the cloud, as well as on-premises. Uh, so with AWS Backups, you get to... Um, protect your AWS resources in a really easy way with only a handful of clicks. Um, and you can do it from the console, you can do it from the CLI, uh, and you can do it programmatically as well. So um, you can configure and audit uh, the resources that you want to back up, um, automate everything by scheduling them, uh, set things like retention policies, which are really, really important, uh, as well as monitor all of the backups and uh, also the restore activities. And uh, so this is the whole spectrum of providing uh, backup functionality. So while backup is uh, not really hip and cool for a lot of people, it's uh, it's really necessary. Um, and it's also about reducing risk. And for many organizations, this is a key requirement, especially if you're operating in heavily regulated industries, um, like you know the banking sector, for example, you don't want to lose a single bit, not even a byte, but a single bit of information. Uh, so look, before I dive in uh, into this, uh, what it really does is uh, it enables the uh, the backups of things like EBS volumes. Uh, if you're using EFS, the file system, and RDS databases, it supports those, uh, including DynamoDB tables. Uh, and also what's interesting is um, um, if you're running storage gateway volumes to Amazon um, S3, these are also supported. So uh, it really is a, uh, a native mechanism provided by us that provides a tiering support so you can push your older backups into things like Glacier as well. So uh, yeah, it's quite a, quite a useful service, Shane. It is. Pete, you sparked my curiosity when you mentioned on-premises. So mm. how does that work? Do I need to install an agent? Do I need outbound internet access? How does it work? 
Great question. So because backup includes support for um, storage gateway volumes, uh, you can either leverage your existing backup applications to create backups using the storage gateway in a virtual Tate library format capacity or provide a storage uh, via iSCSI volumes to shares uh, to your uh, machines directly to be consumed. So um, when you think about that, so it's not going to be a, a full backup service, if you like, for your operating system, but it does allow you to recover on-premises data uh, to which hopefully using configuration management um, to also build your OS. So think of it as, you know, pointing a volume um, at, say, like a storage gateway and, and all of that stuff behind the scenes uh, is transferred into, uh, you know, and controlled via backup. Now, to leverage the service, um, so um, it's, it's kind of pretty cool. So what you can do is you can create a typical... Um, uh, you know, in a typical fashion for backups, people create backup plans, right? Um, and this is generally done in some kind of a tool. So this will be done inside the AWS console. But what's really interesting is once you create these, um, we actually create uh, them in JSON, so, which means that you can, uh, through the console, create the configuration, the backup plans, uh, and then actually have a JSON definition of it, which means you can actually recreate that programmatically um, or via scripts, uh, or via your you know, backup regimes and commit those to source, source control um, and control uh, what has changed. So that way you've got visibility of deltas. So uh, how's that pretty? How's that for a, a cool little service? That's pretty cool. I really love the ability to export it as JSON. Yeah, and that means you can also import back in. And I think, you know, we've just mentioned, you know, backups not necessarily hip and cool. There is definitely a, a difference between, you know, redundancy and, and backups, you know, you can have all the redundancies, but sometimes, you know, humans make mistakes. They may uh, accidentally, you know, drop that table in a database or delete this and redundancy, a high availability isn't going to be able to provide that. So there is definitely a need for this and it fills a great gap. Yeah, look, it's an important point that you actually make around, you know, making mistakes. So when you actually set up AWS backup, um, it will require IAM permission. So you want to control, you know, what this thing can actually touch uh, over your resources um, and actually assign an AWS backup um, role to your account. So these backups are, you know, integrated also with CloudTrail uh, for the uh, for the security conscious amongst us. So you can actually see what and when has changed. Um, and, you know, in doing so, I'll give you more visibility uh, around actually what's going on. So it's a pretty straightforward service to set up uh, from the console. Uh, like I said, DynamoDB, EFS, EBS, RDS, Storage Gateway, um, they're all supported. We're going to be adding more and more things moving forward. So the, the short of it really is uh, if you really want to treat it as infrastructure as code, as many of you do, uh, you can programmatically access this through the API. It has about 42 actions. So rather than logging into the console, you could actually, uh, in your continuous integration uh, pipelines, for instance, or your scripts, uh, contact the service. And using JSON, uh, as we talked about, you could actually submit and create jobs um, and uh, backup plans. So if you are going to be doing this via the APIs and the CLIs, uh, please make sure that your AWS CLI is up to date and uh, as of version 1.16.93 uh, it has support for that and uh, at the moment um, AWS backup is available in US East US um, so, so Virginia Ohio Oregon and Ireland regions are currently supported and we're working very very hard to bring it to uh, this part of the world over here down under and across APAC. I think it is worthwhile calling out it's important to note that you can only use AWS backup to backup resources in the same region. Yes, really, really important. It's all about being all in the same region. If you do need to move stuff uh, um, between regions, that's a whole other conversation. And we have uh, lots of functionality and features to actually help you with uh, moving your Amy's and backups all over the place. 
that we do. All right, speaking of features, some time ago, we launched EC2 cluster placement groups, which allows you to place your instances you know, in a low latency, single availability zone, which is designed for you know, a high network throughput for specific workloads, you know, usually around HPC. Mm-hmm. Then in 2017, we launched EC2 spread placement groups, which is a group of instances that are placed on distinct underlying hardware. So let's say you might have like five EC2 instances in a spread placement group. These instances would not share any underlying hardware with each other. And the use case here is really for applications that have you know a small number of critical instances that should never be on the same hardware, you know, to reduce a risk of simultaneous failures because, you know, things fail all the time that might occur when instances sharing the same underlying hardware do fail. And you do want to control the blast radius. And that's, that's an important point to call out. Right? Like you said, everything fails all the time. And uh, we see mean time between failures on a whole bunch of equipment. Um, and no matter how much uh, uh, you fight it, you know, uh, entropy in the universe will eventually get you. All things fall apart, right? So uh, it's very important to make sure that, you know, you do consider, you know, the underlying infrastructure. Um, and we automatically try to do a lot of these things for you. Uh, but this feature is actually um, quite handy. Yeah, and look... Sometimes, you know, ideally you want your software to be able to graciously deal with failure. But the reality is sometimes, you know, you might be using that COTS application and it just hasn't been designed like that. Or potentially, even if it is in-house, the cost to re-engineer may not be, you know, palatable. So Mm. moving on here, in December, so post-reInvent, we launched another placement type. It's called partition placement groups. So what is it? Why should you use it? Now, I'm going to do my best to describe it here without a picture. So here goes. That's right. Turn on your imagination, folks. <laughs> visualize. We need to visualize here. All right. So a partition placement group is a group of instances spread across partitions. And a partition is a logical grouping of EC2 instances where you know the contained instances do not share the same underlying hardware across different partitions. So... It's kind of like a spread placement group, but it's not. So you're grouping the instances into logical partitions. So each partition comprises of multiple instances. So you could kind of think of a spread cluster placement group as a partition of one. In this partition placement mode, we're able to group multiple EC2 instances in the same partition. Now, why should you use this spread instance uh, placement group, you might ask. Well, you know, there are some workloads where this behavior is desirable. So large distributed and replicated workloads such as HDFS, HBase, and Cassandra perform optimally in this topology. These applications and file systems are topology aware, and they'll use this information to make, you know, more intelligent data replication decisions for, you know, increasing data availability and durability. So So Shane, yeah, I was just going to say, so having, you mentioned Cassandra, and I play with Cassandra um, in a little while back. So, so you imagine folks, you know, having a single availability zone in which you create, say, you know, three partitions, um, and each of those partitions might be a dev, test, and a prod Cassandra um, cluster, right? And Cassandra, you know, when you set it up, you know, you configure how many nodes you want, how many replication nodes you want, you know, how heavily spread you want this replication. So uh, by using um, this new feature, uh, you can actually be very, very specific about, you know, how many nodes you have and uh, how densely um, the replication actually occurs. So it's a really clever way of uh, making sure that you minimize your blast radius, don't run on the same underlying host physical hardware, uh, but still have that maximum 
our resilience, if you like, uh, as Shane was talking about, uh, to be able to uh, you know give you a maximum uptime for your clusters. Yeah, I think it's just a great example of us rounding out the EC2 feature set. So EC2 has so many features today, but it is great to see that we're still continuing to innovate. And I'm sure, you know, customers have asked for this. And as a result, we've built it out. Indeed. But look, it's also worth calling out that there are a few rules and constraints uh, around partition placement groups. So let me just go through some of these. Uh, so partition placement group supports a maximum at this point in time of seven partitions per availability zone. So the number of instances that you can launch inside a partition placement group is only limited by the account limits, right? So uh, by default, your account has uh, about 20 or so instances uh, limits. If you want more, you can uh, log a ticket to get more. But fundamentally, uh, you get uh, a maximum of seven partitions per AZ. So file that away. Uh, also, when instances are launched into a placement group, uh, the Amazon uh, Institute tries to evenly distribute all those instances across all the partitions. However, we can't actually guarantee that is the case. We do our very best to make sure that happens. Um, but with all things in cloud, um, you know, uh, at every second or millisecond rather, uh, the capacities change throughout the infrastructure. But we do our very best to make sure these are spread across um, different hardware. Um, and also the placement groups, um, the partitions uh, do work with dedicated instances, uh, but you can have a maximum only of two partitions. So if you're running uh, dedicated instances, you get two partitions, just to be clear. Uh, and also partition placement groups are not supported for dedicated hosts when you think about it, uh, because uh, by, by its very nature, uh, you stack everything on the one dedicated host chain. That we do. So Shane, we just talked about the placement groups and generally while you also um, you know, want your placement groups is to be very close to each other, which is probably why you probably want to have them sitting inside a single AZ. Uh, so that's networking for you. Um, and on a networking front, I've also got an, another announcement that I wanted to make, and that is uh, around something called AWS Client VPN. Uh, before I get to that, um, you probably may be aware that we've had support for site-to-site -site VPN for quite a while now, which allowed you to extend your data center or your branch office into AWS Cloud. Uh, but we've also had customers come back to us and say that uh, sometimes they just need to connect from an end user device, like a laptop uh, or, a, or, a, or some kind of a you know a phone or um, IoT device uh, into the AWS cloud. So um, we've listened, um, and as you guys know, 95%, uh, well, 90% plus, in fact, uh, of many of our services are influenced by your ask, so keep it coming. Uh, we've had a number of customers saying, can we please have this feature? So AWS Client VPN is essentially a managed client VPN as a service that enables you to securely access your AWS resources and resources on-premises as well. Uh, so I'll explain it shortly, but what it really means is that with a client VPN, you can access your resources from any location using the open VPN based VPN client, which Shana is quite popular. Really is. I do. I was about to say it's probably the standard these days. Maybe it's not, but open VPN is extremely popular and available on almost every platform out there. Yes, and you can grab it from openvpn.net um, and uh, just browse over to the uh, the actual community downloads page and uh, you can pretty much find almost uh, a large population of devices and operating systems being supported. So with the um, this service announcement, what you do is when you hop on the console, uh, you will basically create a, um, a VPN um, uh, Turn the service on, uh, give it a name, 
uh, and assign a virtual gateway to it, um, as well as a whole bunch of other configurations. And what it means is that once it's been set up, it provides secure TLS connections from any of your devices using the OpenVPN client. It removes, you know, typically the operational burden of, you know, deploying and running, uh, you know, your own VPN solution. I think, Shane, you run a, a Raspberry Pi at home doing this for oh, you right now? Yeah, we were chatting prior to this show. So I currently run a Raspberry Pi at home with open VPN server that I have a friend and we play games uh, <laughs> running inside my house. He's uh, on the other side of the country. So I do wonder if I'll be able to use open VPN running in the cloud in, in place of running on my Raspberry Pi at home. Something to have a tinker with for sure. Yeah, definitely worth a play. So basically, yeah, it's uh, so the Pi is not exactly the best uh, scalable enterprise solution. <laughs> so the beauty of the service is that uh, we will automatically scale to the number of users that are coming in as connections. And the wonderful thing is, as always, uh, you pay only for what you use, Shane. Absolutely. Really good. So often people will wonder when you set these things up, you know, how do I authenticate and, and control my user population? And uh, this service actually has uh, pretty good support for uh, two main ways of securing access. Um, one of them is so you can set up authorization and authentication. So first of all, to authenticate, you can use um, Active Directory. Uh, and also mutual certificates for authentication. So that's how you get in and, and uh, say you are who you are. Uh, and then once you've been authorized, there are two ways of gaining access to your systems. Uh, and that's via security groups as well as network-based uh, authorization. So what that means is that if you use the security groups option, uh, the VPN client automatically integrates with your security groups that you have set up for your VPCs. So you can um, enable the client access to your applications within the VPC on the basis of allowing traffic flows uh, from certain security groups uh, that you've actually associated in the configuration of the service. So that's one way of doing this. The other option is to actually use network-based authorization uh, so that for a specific, specified network, so a VPC in this case, you configure the Active Directory group that is allowed to access that particular uh, VPC and subnets, right? So this way, uh, only users who belong to a specific Active Directory group uh, gets access to a specific network. That is pretty granular. That's uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, as they say. Yeah, and look, and you can use this for um, typically the access to VPC, uh, as I've just described, or you could access to um, a peered VPC. Um, you could also even use it to access the internet and use um, this as a way in to have a secure connection from a device into your VPC, and then use the AWS backbones to, uh, you know, access the entire wild west of the internet. Uh, and uh, you've touched up on this briefly. You could actually access on premises. So once you're actually in the AWS VPC um, and connected through, uh, you could then actually route your traffic back onto your uh, corporate or in your your case perhaps uh, your home network chain uh, to be able to uh, to play your games. Perhaps, but I do see, Pete, AWS Client VPN is available in US East, Virginia, Ohio, US East, US West Oregon, EU Island, and support for other AWS regions is coming soon. And because of that, I'm not sure how the latency will work given we are in Australia, but yes. something to test. Have a good play. And certainly um, Oregon's, uh, you know, um, ping times are pretty decent. Uh, but yes, if you're playing real-time games, perhaps this may not be the solution for you. So maybe you're, there is still life in your Raspberry Pi after all, Shane. Maybe there is. Alrighty. So look, not every situation, you know, is suited to a VPN, you know, when needing to provide users remote access to your resources. Um, you know, what happens if you just want to securely publish access to an internal website? 
establishing a VPN tunnel may work, but it's often, you know, a real heavy handed approach. You know, how many times do you ever get a link to an email? You're reading it on your phone and you click on it and you realize, oh no, it's hosted inside my, you know, corporate internal network. So, uh, you know, to me, it happens quite a bit. What about Same you, here. Pete? All yeah. the- all the time. So, uh, look, we've got some uh, solutions at AWS uh, for that internally, uh, and uh, you're gonna—I think you're gonna be announcing something that's really useful. That uh, yeah, it's very been um, tested um, within the organization. I think we do. So we now have an answer, and it's not an MDM or a mobile device management client. You know that that typically you know choose battery. It's a new service that provides employees access to internal corporate websites and web apps using their mobile phones providing you, you know, that link to the office in a transparent, low-friction manner. And the service is called Amazon WorkLink. Hey, what a, what a clever name, Shane. All right, so it's a fully managed service that lets you provide your employees secure one-click access to internal web content as easy as, you know, they access any public website, you know, without the hassle of connecting to a corporate network. So we say without the hassle, it's transparent. So I may need to sit this one out at present because it only supports iOS 12, meaning for the likes of myself who are Android users, there's no support, but it's something that's currently being worked on. So so more, more for me in that case, being an iOS Apple person, right? So yeah, Shane, more for can, you. You, can you explain how this works? Because uh, it's it's an interesting one. So when you start looking at um, the information, it doesn't quite jump out at you. Uh, you do have to install some software on your device. Uh, can you maybe explain uh, the backstory of the tech and how it actually works? Yeah, okay. Users will need to install the Amazon WorkLink app on their phone, which then connects to your fleet within AWS. And the WorkLink WorkLink fleet consists of resources and the configuration necessary to make your internal websites available to your authorized users. So this WorkLink app is just running there containing configuration and it's acting as a transparent proxy. So right. when a user tries to access a page on an internal domain, the WorkLink client will intercept this and it will contact your fleet of hosted servers within AWS. And then WorkLink within AWS is going to isolate the page. It's going to run it within a browser and a secure container with AWS. And then WorkLink will then send the contents of the page back to the phone as vector graphics whilst magically preserving the functionality and interactivity of the page. So this is going to be more secure than a traditional approach because the internal content is never stored or cached by the browser on the phone and the, the phone never directly connects to your corporate network. Okay, so let's just go through this in more detail. So on my device, I have this um, little, little app, the WorkLink um, app, which basically does some clever tunneling for me. And depending on which uh, domain I'm going to, it'll actually either take me, ignore, it won't get in the way and the, your browser that you're using on the device takes you straight to the website. Or if it's a corporate website, it takes you via a special connection into a fleet of machines that do this clever magic voodoo uh, inside containers um, that simulates a browser and then connects to the actual corporate application on your in your VPC. Is that right? It is, yeah, pretty much spot on. So I like to think of it as maybe like a conditional DNS forwarder. So if a domain is, say, my company domain, .local, and I've clicked on that link and Safari has, you know, spun up, well, work link, the application will intercept this. It will grab the data and then send it back through Safari. So from the end user's perspective, completely transparent. Otherwise, 
if the link or the resource is not hosted on my corporate domains, then Safari will just grab it as normal. Awesome. So Shane, how do I start at the back end of this then? So that's great. So now I get how it works on a device. Tell me a little bit more about the actual service and the fleet that you got to set up. Okay. So not being a iOS user, I had to beg and beg my son to uh, pass me back his iPhone 6 that I gave him as a hand-me-down to have a bit of a play with this. So what you need to do here is first create a fleet. So when you create a fleet, you can perform regional optimization either by routing through a specific region, perhaps for regulatory compliance, or you can even optimize it for better performance by sending it through the closest region, kind of like say CloudFront. So what is a fleet you ask? So a fleet consists of resources and the configuration necessary to make your internal websites available to your authorized users. So after you've created your fleet, you need to configure the fleet. And when you do that, you need to provide a few details. So you need to provide the fleet access to a VPC with on-premises connectivity to your resources within AWS. So you can use an existing or a new VPC to link a network. And this, you know, as I just mentioned, allows you to access your company's internal web content. So Shane, so, so, so the fleet really is uh, that, that render farm, if you like, that actually is that proxy, right? That takes care of that, that, that container farm, if you like, um, of, uh, you know, that handle all the incoming requests, the rendering of the vector graphics and the communications to the backend service. That's exactly right. It's that proxy that that in the that man in the middle that's contacting on premises and acting as the connection to the mobile devices. Awesome. So a call out here though with on premises that the resources must be accessible via an IPsec tunnel or AWS Direct Connect or even the new AWS Transit Gateway. And if the applications are running, say, in a VPC within your environment, you can use private link to access the AWS services while keeping, you know, all the traffic, you know, nice and secure. Yeah, so, so Shane, so, so doing a POC, if I was doing a proof of concept, I could simply just set up a, a, a VPC in the cloud, um, set up my, uh, you know, uh, as we talked earlier, my VPN connection from AWS into my on-premises um, and uh, run some experiments by publishing certain internal corporate websites uh, via Amazon WorkLink. Yeah, that's it. So nice and easy. Nice and easy. So look, you do need to wire up a few bits of configuration here. So you, you do need to specify an identity provider. So you know you can you know configure an existing identity provider to work with Amazon WorkLink. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of companies they might be using an internal CA that doesn't leverage a publicly trusted you know root certificate. So you do have the option to upload any CAs that WorkLink will need to you know know about, you know, in case you are using self-signing certificates. Sure. You can specify device policy. So this is optional, but you can allows you to add some more fine-grained control over your devices. Now, domains. So what domains should WorkLink intercept? So just to ensure I'm not intercepting Pete's awesomewebsite.com, in the configuration there is a validation process that you need to prove that you know you own the domain and there's access to it. So when I went through in my test case here, I needed to add a C name with a specific value that the console will tell you to do into my DNS. So it could be Route 53, it could be elsewhere as long as it's publicly accessible. And then you can validate after you've added the C name that this has taken place. And then you receive a company code. So when your users download the Amazon WorkLink app, they need to enter in. This is all you need to do is enter in the company code. And that company code effectively wires your device into the configuration for your fleet here. Nice. Simple as that. 
Yes, and I guess I like the simplicity of having the identifier that the you know, the end device just puts a single number in, and all that config stuff is automatically picked up and understood and processed yep. by the um, by the client app. And that's all you need to do. And then after that, those internal resources should be accessible on your mobile device. And look, if you're after more information on this, there's a Twitch session on Amazon Worklink on February 11th. Awesome. Uh, go check it out. You know, we're, we're big Twitch fans, so uh, go uh, tune in and uh, listen and watch, rather, uh, and to see what's going on. So, Shane, what are the costs of this? Okay, so pricing is based on the number of users with active browser sessions in a given month. So it's $5 US per active user per month. Okay, so far cheaper than uh, running your own concentrators and trying to come up with uh, clever proxy uh, mechanisms to try to do some of this stuff. Yeah, awesome. So, Shane... Um, Look at the time again. We're, we're, we're almost out. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. Time has absolutely flown today. I think we're having too much fun. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Look, it's, uh, it's great to be back on the show and uh, great to uh, tickle your ears again. Uh, Shane, do you want to maybe perhaps do a quick recap of, uh, of what we've announced today? Yeah, for sure, Pete. Um, all right. So we started the show with a price cut, you know, 50%, up to 50% for Fargate, which is awesome, awesome news for our customers. Uh, we talked about server 2019, you know, what it brings to the table, why you should upgrade. Pete, you introduced us to a new service, AWS Backup, you know, giving users a managed method to centralize and automate the backup of data across AWS services in the cloud as well as on-premises. We touched on EC2 placement groups, you know, allowing you to spread your instances across logical partitions, allowing those applications that are partition aware to make you know, intelligent decisions to increase data availability, durability, etc. We spoke about AWS Client VPN, so it's our managed client-based VPN service that you can leverage an open VPN-based client to directly connect in to your VPC. And we closed the show out with another new service, Amazon Worklink, which provides your employees secure, one-click access to internal web content. Thanks, Pete. Wow. Yeah. It was That's a, a lot. And time just flew. It did. So, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in once again. And, look, we always love hearing your feedback. Uh, so, don't be shy. Please uh, send us an email to awstechchat, one word, at amazon.com. Until next time, bye for now. And keep on building. Ciao. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com. <laughs>